This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Now the permits that we give given had conditions to make sure that we can monitor the activities and that we can ensure ourselves continuously that no risk to the aquifer is happening. Now, unfortunately, the company did not confirm to the conditions. That's Kali Sheltwin, Namibia's Minister for Agriculture, Water and Land Reform, on the decision to halt Russia's state atomic energy agency's uranium exploration. Details coming up also. Officials are arriving in Tigray for joint monitoring and verification of a peace deal. West African fishermen suffer with prices soaring for essentials. And former Pope Benedict's health is reported to be unchanged. All these and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. East African and African Union officials have arrived in the Tigray region of Ethiopia to launch a joint monitoring and verification mechanism for a peace deal signed in November to end the two-year-old war. Mohamed Yasuf reports from VOA's African News Center in Nairobi, Kenya. The mediating team, led by former Nigerian President Ole Seguno Basanjo and Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, as well as African Union representatives and diplomats from various countries, arrived Thursday in Mekele, the Tigray region's capital. The team that helped broker a peace deal between Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front in South Africa is keeping an eye on the ceasefire's progress. The warring factions agreed to a joint African Union monitoring team to ensure that the peace agreement is being implemented and that no ceasefire violations are occurring. The warring factions have agreed to a joint African Union monitoring team to ensure that the peace agreement is being implemented and that no ceasefire violations are occurring. The visiting delegation was welcomed by Tigray Region President Debatisyon Gebremichel and will be monitoring the full implementation of the peace agreement. The agreement calls for the restoration of all services, the provision of adequate aid to the needy population, the disarmament of rebel groups, and the withdrawal of foreign forces and other militia groups from the region. The delegation's visit comes as the Tigray rebel group prepares to disarm and surrender the region to the federal government. The Tigray rubber group is hesitant to accept the move because they accuse Eritrean troops of attacking the population and obstructing humanitarian aid, as well as the presence of militias from the Amhara and Afar regions. The government restored telecommunication services to more towns this week, and Ethiopian Airlines flew to Mekele for the first time in nearly two years on Wednesday, allowing families to reconnect. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Millions of Africans depend on fish for their main meal nearly every day, but the price of ice, nets, and other basic commodities for West African fisheries has skyrocketed in recent weeks. Soaring fuel prices, caused in large part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, have hit fishermen and working-class communities hard. The World Food Programme says... 
food insecurity exists in at least eight West and Central African countries and is expected to worsen in 2023. Some 48 million people will likely face hunger in those countries in the next year, according to the United Nations. Ndiagagoai is the regional senior fisheries officer for the Food and Agriculture Organization and acting FAO country representative in Ghana. He tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the price of ice alone, which fishing crews on multi-day journeys need to store their catch, has soared in one week. If we take the, the cost of ice as an example, this will have an impact on the conservation of the products. That's a lot of post-harvest losses. It is the same with the cost of the other production tools like uh, fishing gears, uh, nets uh, and others. It really has an impact on the cost of production. And of course, if the price of the, the nets and other tools like engines and uh, oils are uh, high, it will impact the renewal of the equipment that is largely depreciated. Because fishermen, they need to renew their equipment. But because of the high prices now, the inflation rate is so high that they are facing serious problems. How many countries and how many people rely on fish for their you know, main source of food for a meal? And in West Africa, one can say that maybe more than 10 million people are directly or indirectly involved in the, the fishing sector. To be more precise, I can say that, for instance, if you take a country like Senegal or Sierra Leone, fish is a staple food. In Senegal, maybe 75% of animal protein intakes come from the fish and fishery products. So it is a serious concern in many of these West African countries, not only those who have coastal zone, but even in the inland Fish and fishery products are extremely important, and they are facing the same problem than those communities living near the seashore. So it is really a global, let's say, concern in the Sahel and the West Africa region. I understand that this is really affecting a lot of children, too. The the UN um, is reporting that around 48 million people are expected to face hunger in the region next year, and 9 million of them are children. Do you do, do people actually... See that in the in you know the everyday life of, of people there in Sierra Leone and Senegal and other West African countries. Yes, I can say yes. They are experiencing this kind of difficulties to have access to the fish and fishery products because simply due to the lack of tools and equipment and means for fishermen to go. But it's not only because of the soaring prices but also because, uh, unfortunately, the capacity of uh, production by, uh, by our seas is at least at the, the ceiling. We cannot produce more than we are producing nowadays. How big of a, a factor was the Russian invasion in Ukraine with the fuel prices there? Recently, there was a study done by FAO and ECOWAS, the, East Economic, the Economic Committee Commission for West African States. And this study, which was conducted last August, showed that with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, there was, for instance, a deficit of fertilizer of 1.2 to 1.5 million tons. 
And this is representing a loss of cereal production of about 20 million tons. So there is undoubtedly one of the factors in the food crisis is the Russian-Ukraine crisis. But there are also some other factors. For instance, the civil insecurity. Now in the Sahel region, we have more or less 5 million internally displaced persons, IDPs. Also, the, the COVID crisis is still there. And it's sustained an increase in the price of basic food stuff. So we all know that uh, how climate change is affecting the agriculture sector, agriculture in a very broad sense. That's Indiaga Guai, Regional Senior Fisheries Officer for the Food and Agriculture Organization and Acting Fowl County Representative in Ghana. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam for, from Dakar, Senegal. Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, today dismissed the low turnout in his month's uh, parliamentary elections and took aim at his critics. Just over 11% of registered voters took part in the vote, two points higher than initial estimates. The French news agency AFP says that the lowest figure since the 2011 revolution that overthrew uh, Abidine Ben Ali, it's also seen as a rejection of Saeed's assumption of growing presidential powers, takeover of the judiciary, and weakening of parliament. He reportedly told his cabinet today that turnout of 9% or 12% is better than 99% in previous elections, which were welcomed by foreign countries, even though they knew they were rigged. He said critics were drowning in corruption and treachery and plotting against the state. A video on his Facebook page said, they would not go unpunished. And he called those who criticized the alleged weakening of human rights protections in the country mercenaries. During the three-day U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, President Joe Biden announced several major initiatives. The United States will provide $55 billion to Africa during the next three years for development, economic growth, health, and security. Washington also will support a permanent seat for Africa on the UN Security Council and membership in the group of 20 of the world's largest economies. And Biden will visit Africa next year. Ahmed Fatih, a UN correspondent and global affairs analyst, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shinawi whether these initiatives reflect a lasting shift in US Africa policy. I hope like many others, that there will be a continuation in the U.S. approach with the African continent. However, African countries, African leaders, uh, observers, they have a level of skepticism. During the uh, former President Trump administration, Africa was really in the forgotten uh, parts of the world. What Africans hope that the current resuscitation of the U.S.-Africa relationship would be sustainable. It needs to be instable institutionalized. And most importantly, the conclusions of this forum are quite promising. But I hope that the administration would carry on. Logically, I would say that in areas as foreign policy and defense, it should transcend the partisan divide we have in the United States. What can happen next? Who's going to be the next uh, president? I cannot really guarantee that. Usually with uh, Democrats uh, and because of the nature of the Democratic Party and the leadership, there is, of course, more understanding and sympathy. Uh, but it's again, it comes down to fulfillment.
Ahmed, you have been working at the UN for so many years. How do you think that giving Africa a permanent seat at the UN Security Council and a membership in the G20 group will contribute to meeting this era's challenges? And is Africa ready to play this kind of role in the global stage? Giving Africa a permanent seat Uh, that uh, President Biden, during his statement at the UN General Assembly, it's been on the table for over 20 years. I remember when I first came to the United Nations over a decade ago, one of the first meetings that I covered was the reform of the Security Council. I remember back then speaking to one of the veteran diplomats, the UN, and he said, well, don't be carried away, but it's, it's going to take at least uh, 20 more years to reach that reform. President Biden bringing it to the forefront and making it part of his statement to the General Assembly gives it a, a weight and a heavy weight, but it's not the end of the route. There is procedural obstacles giving a country a permanent seat on the council that will require amending the UN chart procedure for uh, amending the UN charter as stipulated in Article 108. It will require two-thirds majority at the uh, General Assembly to approve, number one. Number two, it has to be ratified by two-thirds of the voting countries, including the five permanent uh, members of the Security Council. Do you see that this can happen in a year or two? I doubt very much. The things, how things run in the, in the United Nations, in the multilateral diplomacy in general, that we need to build consensus. U.S. is uh, in favor of giving Africa a seat, not only Africa, but also do you want to give uh, another European country a permanent seat? Do you want to give Japan uh, or an Asian country, whether it be Japan, it's going to be India? There is uh, so many stakeholders in amending the UN Charter. Another challenge that which country in Africa would be holding the seat? Is it going to be South Africa, Nigeria, Egypt, Morocco? Who in Africa will be entrusted with this uh, important development? These are all questions we have to take into consideration. That was Ahmed Fatih, a UN correspondent and global affairs analyst, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El Shinawi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. The Vatican says, Former Pope Benedict remains in grave but stable condition and unchanged from yesterday. Reuters, quoting The Vatican, says the retired Pope rested well overnight and is lucid. Another source, the French news agency AFP, says that his condition began to deteriorate about three days ago. The source said... His vital functions are failing, including his heart, but added that he has the necessary medical equipment at home to prevent immediate hospitalization. Yesterday, Pope Francis urged the Catholics around the world to pray for his predecessor. In 2013, Benedict became the first pope in 600 years to resign as the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. The Vatican will hold a special Mass for him on Friday at Rome's Basilica of St. John's Lateran. Forty-six soldiers from Ivory Coast will be tried by a court of appeal in Mali today. In military government in Bamako, which calls them mercenaries, arrested the troops in July as they arrived at the airport to back up a German contingent of UN peacekeepers. The French news agency AFP says... The court session will not be open to the public, but the International Committee of the Red Cross would attend as observers. 
The news service noted that the appearance of the troops in court comes in the run-up to a January 1st deadline set by West African leaders for Mali to release them or face sanctions. An Ivorian delegation that flew to Mali for talks on the crisis last week said the issue is on the way to being resolved. Italy's right-wing government has approved new measures restricting the procedures of ships that rescue migrants at sea. Reuters says a new cabinet decree says vessels that pick up stranded migrants should request a port in Europe and sail it without delay rather than continue looking for others in distress. Currently, rescue ships stay in the Mediterranean for several days, sometimes picking up hundreds before docking. Under the new rules, captains breaching the measures can be fined 53,000 U.S. dollars and potentially have their ships impounded. The government of Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni says non-government organizations are facilitating traffickers and are a pool factor, attracting new migrants. But the charities say a document from Italy's interior ministry shows only about 10% of the new arrivals this year were brought in by aid group boats. Reuters says 102,000 migrants arrived in Italy in 2022, about double the previous year, but lower than the peak of 181,000 in 2016. Namibia has halted uranium exploration by Russia's State Atomic Energy Agency over concerns about potential contamination of underground water. Namibia is Africa's biggest producer of the nuclear fuel and the world's second largest, and in 2019 granted Russia's Rosatom subsidiary one uranium exploration rights. But this month, Namibia's Ministry of Agriculture, Water and Land Reform refused to grant it a water use permit required by mining, saying the company failed to prove its uranium extraction method would not cause pollution. Vitalio Angola reports from Windhoeken, Namibia. Namibia's Minister of Agriculture, Water and Land Reform, Kalesh Ladvine, told VOA this month they could not grant Russia's Atomic Energy Agency a permit for uranium mining. Namibia, Africa's biggest uranium producer and the world's second, in 2019 gave Rosatom exploration rights. But its local subsidiary, One Uranium, still requires a water use permit to begin mining. Schladwein said no further permit would be granted because the method of mining the company proposed, known as in-situ leaching, was raising environmental concerns. Now the permits that we give given had conditions to make sure that we can monitor the activities and that we can ensure ourselves continuously that no risk to the aquifer is happening. Now unfortunately the company did not confirm to the conditions and we have now suspicion that the mining operation, which is called in-situ leaching mining, is in fact a serious risk to the aquifer by polluting it. In-situ mining involves recovering minerals by dissolving them in an acid pumped into the ground and then pumping the solution back to the surface. Schladwein said farmers in Namibia's eastern Omaheke region had petitioned against the technique. 
Roy Miller is a retired underground water geologist and member of the management committee of the Stamprit Aquifier Uranium Mining Association, SWAMA. He also petitioned against in-situ mining and read his statement to VOA. Mine solutions do escape because of improper operations, leaks, equipment breakdowns, borehole problems and geological problems. Spreading mine solutions become a major threat to the safety of the drinking water, way beyond the confines of the mine area. One uranium spokesperson, Rian van Royen, dismissed the concerns. He told VOA the extraction method was used in Kazakhstan, the world's largest uranium producer without harming the environment. Because it is a fairly new way, in Africa there is no such mine, um, it is the fear of the unknown that is mostly concerns for the local farmers. Van Royen said halting the project will deprive one of Namibia's poorest regions of about 600 jobs and a $55 million investment. The Russian company in November took a delegation of national and community leaders and media from Namibia to Kazakhstan to show them how in Sutu leaching works. Petra Vedboy is a constituency councillor in Leonardville where the project was proposed to take place. She was on the trip to Kazakhstan and supports the project to help boost gross domestic product. South Sudan is sending 750 troops to join the East Africa force trying to bring peace in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo despite its own struggles with internal conflict. Sheila Pony reports from Juba, South Sudan. President Sal Fakir officially deployed troops to Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo to join an East African regional force aimed at ending decades of bloodshed in that country. The troops join contingents from Kenya, Burundi and Uganda in what is known as a test of the East African community's ability to respond to violence in the region and stabilize the country. Addressing the troops in Juba before their departure, President Kir advised the forces to maintain highest level of professionalism. You are now going on a mission to achieve and keep peace in Congo. Only your caps will change to blue caps because you will participate in a joint operation between all the countries of East Africa, I warn you of the need to show discipline and order. He also instructed the troops not to commit crimes such as rape. SPLM. SPLA. SPLAA during the liberation struggle was very disciplined. I don't want you to go and cause chaos or disorder. Don't go and engage in the raping of women and girls. Minister of Defense and Veteran Affairs Angelina Tengi said that as a member of the East African community, South Sudan has a stake in the security and stability of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, we are asked to contribute uh, a battalion uh, plus a little bit. And we've been preparing all this time, and the battalion now is ready. And today they have just received their final orders from His Excellency the President and the Commander-in-Chief. Um, uh, they will be now on their way for that operation. Angelina Tengi said the East African community had given regional backing to South Sudan's troop deployment 
in the Eastern DRC. She described the country's troop deployment as a positive move by a country grappling with its own security issues. We are very, very proud today because our flag of the Republic of South Sudan is going to be flying as a regional force to continue to, to contribute to stability and peace. And uh, what I was saying there is that this is a great opportunity, a great opportunity for us to actually change the image uh, of this country. South Sudan's troops will be stationed in Goma City, from where they will conduct operations to restore normalcy to the region, where Congolese troops are fighting the M23 rebel group, which is accused of targeting civilians in a decade-old conflict. Sheila Pony for VOA News, Juba, South Sudan. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chang, thank you for choosing the Voice of America.